What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? And again, I say, what's happening? Blues people, folklore people, ethnography people, ethnomusicology people, anthropology people. And I think we have a couple of political science folk and sociologists, thanks to W.E.B. Du Bois. Welcome, welcome. There's another... AFS African American Folklore Section Live. Today we are honoring and spotlighting the creators and participants of the notable folklorists of color and expanding the frames. But before we get into all that, let's get this introduction of who's here and what's going on. Please, let's start with the ladies and then we go to the gentlemen. What's up, everybody? My name is Maria Lewis. I'm from Horsehead, Kentucky, but I am living in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I am the Education uh, Library Coordinator at Simmons College of Kentucky. Um, I'm also a folklorist community scholar, and I also work on the notable folklorists of color as a bibliographer and finding photos. That's me. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed I don't have a sound, uh, uh, an applaud sound. We need to get that. <laughs> Brother Todd. Hello, everybody. My name is Todd Lawrence. I am an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of St. Thomas, which is in still frigid and snowy. I'm looking out the window right now. Uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I am a folklorist. Um, uh, I also teach uh, African-American literature and expressive culture and cultural studies. Um, I am a member of American Folklore Society and co-convener of the African-American Folklore Section. Um, and another thing that I do that I want to call to everybody's attention is I'm one of the um, directors of the Urban Art uh, Mapping Project, where we archive, map and archive uh, street art, um, the, especially street art that uh, came into existence after the murder of George Floyd. So you can check us out at urbanartmapping.org. Yes, yes, yes. Another applaud is due. <laughs> we, we have to celebrate the work. Yeah. There you go. We yeah. got to celebrate just, the work. I'm just, I'm just happy to be here with y'all. <laughs> yes, and I'm Lamont Jack Purley. Uh, I, I pride myself in being an applied public folklorist with a footing in academia. Um, I'm in Bowling Green, Kentucky, by way of Brooklyn, and uh, I produce this magazine and do a lot of broadcasting, and that's it. We <laughs> <laughs> always, always, always celebrate the blues people. So we we have, uh, I guess, we could jump into our uh, announcements before we uh, bring on our guests, right? So again, this is a uh, broadcast sponsored by my organization, my magazine, as well as the American Folklore Society. They're sponsoring it as um, as a uh, 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 as we present our section, which is the African American Folklore Section of the organization. Uh, Todd and I co-convened the section. Um, you can join the section. We actually urge you to join the Miss Marilyn, the president of the organization. How are you? We are. It's great to see you too. So she's saying, "Great to see us." 
And a special shout out to you, Maria. Matter of fact, why am I reading this? Let's just do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Miss Marilyn, you can correct me if I'm incorrect, but we um we are again asking uh, you all to join the organization. And once you join the organization, you could join any section you want, but we want you to join our section as well, right? And our, um, our section is new. I mean, I, I it's it's kind of strange that you would think that you know the uh, American Folklore Society didn't have an African American folklore section, but we just started it recently in the last couple of years. Um, we do have the the 4AF, the Association of African and African American Folklore, Loris, which is a, a a sort of different organization, separate but also within. So, mm-hmm. and one of these times, we'll we should have a a, a a a live stream to talk about the history of that organization as well. But absolutely, this, yeah. But this section within um, the uh, AFS is is relatively new, so we're trying to get people to join. And actually, we have a lot of members so far, but we can always use more. And especially we can use your dues to, to do the things that we are trying to do as a section. So basically we need the cash, the money. <laughs> yeah. Right. And one of the things that we're um, trying to do, well, not even trying to do, we are, thank you, we are actually doing is we um, initiated and we are, um, we have a award called the John Wesley Work the Third Award. How many of you are familiar with Mr. Work's work? You could drop it. You could drop a line. You could drop a line. So John Wesley Work is a historian, educator, ethnomusicologist, and composer. Uh, third generation, possibly fourth generation Fisk um, 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 student and teacher. He went to Columbia. He he is the one who doesn't get credit, but is credited. Hey, Missouri folk arts is um, found and interviewed. McKinley Morganfield, better known to y'all as Muddy Walters, when he did work with um, Fisk, Library of Congress, and Alan Lomax. And we have established this award for those who, I'm looking at my notes, please forgive me, I can't remember everything. (laughs) (laughs) So what we look to do is honor and spotlight applied folklorists, ethnographers, and ethnomusicologists who actively focus on the research, documentation, recording, and highlighting of African-American culture through performance, written word, and music in their scholarly works. Now, with that being said, wrong note excuse me it's a $500 award and you can go here to apply you can also go to Jack Dapple Blues radio and TV YouTube look under live or the africanamericanfolklorist.com to see the archived interview of our this section as Todd and I interviewed Mr. George Geo Cooper who is a Fisk alumni, also a musician, a composer, and someone who studied under and is extremely familiar with Mr. Work's work. And I'll pass it on. Can I, can I jump in and just say that uh, you do not need to be a member of AFS to apply for this award. In fact, we are looking for folks that are out, you know, doing the work wherever they're doing it. And uh, so we, we hope that this award will be an opportunity for folks to get involved with AFS and our section. 
um, so that we can get involved with the work that you're doing and get connected to it. So uh, folks out there who may not even think of themselves as folklorists, I mean, I hope that they do, but they might call themselves something else. Um, you're doing work in the community with with folks, with um, their traditions, with their material culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, take a look at this application and see if it sounds like it's talking about you. Yeah, you know something? I, I think that is such a great point. We need to focus on something real quick that can lead us into today's topic in the, the next six minutes. So some folks who are doing the work and don't refer to themselves as some folks that do the work and are not or omitted because of um, being other, if you will. Let's talk about briefly. So what are some of the works that could be done that people don't realize they're doing folkloristic or ethnographic work, but it actually is maybe so we can give those who are not a part of the discipline a little bit of understanding. You want, you want to go, Maria? You want me to go? You go. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, like, there's lots of, this is the thing that, a conversation that we've been having for many years within the society, you know, how do we reach out to people who are doing uh, this kind of work in the community, but they're not doing it as academics or even as public folklorists, which we, you know, the, the term that we use within our, within our discipline, <clears throat> but there are people, for example, who are storytellers, or there are people who are, so see, these are people who practice, right? Uh, storytellers, uh, traditional musicians, uh, people who are craft folks who are making, um, you know, whether they're doing folk art or they're doing, uh, engaging in um, kind of like uh, folk art, uh, folk creation, like, I don't know, carving bowls or things, you know, there are all kinds of things that people do. Um, that is the creation of that material culture. Um, and there are people who also work with these people, right? Like who study the work that they do, who um, engage with them trying to uh, archive this work or preserve the traditions, et cetera. So th there may be folks who are doing this who are not, uh, who do not call themselves folklorists. Um, and uh, we want to reach out to them and, you know, help them to understand that maybe what they're doing is folklore, right? Um, people who are, you know, uh, making clothing, traditional clothing, um, people who are in food ways, like people who are, who are looking at um, the food traditions, culinary traditions of different groups, um, especially African-Americans, you know, so, um, and we're, and, you know, for us, the African-American section, we're, we're focused on African-American folklore, um, but, you know, we, I think we mean this invitation to uh, people who are working in, in all manner of different communities um, that American Folklore Society wants to connect with you. So, you know, when we come to a city and we're coming to Portland next, yep. next meeting. So in uh, the 2023 annual meeting will be in Portland. We always try to, to connect with folks who are doing work in the community wherever we're going to. So we're going to be uh, making, working on those connections right now and, and so there are folks out there, you know, who are doing something. And I think that would be especially um, appropriate if like somebody in, in Portland is doing work with in black communities, for example, with, um, you know, traditional storytelling or whatever it might be to maybe think like our last our last award winner was a, was a woman um, who basically does miniatures um, that depict black life. 
Right, Karen Collins. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know that that would have like jumped out to me right off the bat. Like, oh, this is folklore. And we start when we saw the application, we were like, oh my gosh, yeah, she is doing folklore. I mean, she is trying. She's depicting, like, studying, observing, and then you know, creating these miniatures that that show us these uh, sort of scenes of black life. And right. it's really amazing work. Right. I, I would go as far as saying she's an active participant, mm -hmm. right, in a, of an extension of something that actually happened. And what, what's that much more amazing about her work is she scaled down uh, locational folklore mm -hmm. into a space that still encompasses the black space, but enough to be in an exhibit so we can, like, from the outside look at ourselves mm -hmm. almost reflectively mm -hmm. and, and 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 to just piggyback off what todd said all of these things are folk life or tradition you, you, if you're a rapper it doesn't even have to be um uh, uh artistic expression even though at the end of the day it becomes artistic right mm -hmm. you 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 can look at um um architecture vernacular in a black community how how a lot of these buildings or homes or even cabins or shacks how they could look resemble the pattern the meaning behind these spaces that a lot of us grew up in i know coming from the east coast there's what we call back blocks and there's projects and 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 these different and, and tenement buildings and court buildings so there's all these kind of things that people study that or, or or document or preserve that they don't know or realize or wouldn't equate it to being uh in our discipline and you are actually yeah. in our discipline yeah. um so with that being said i think and you to let me know it's about that time to bring in olivia and phyllis all right all right so, welcome to the show, ladies. We're Hello. glad to be here. Hi, good to be here. Yay. Nice to see you, too. Thanks so, for listening to you all, chat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess before we jump into it, it would be a great idea, I think, you could, uh, for you, uh, Olivia and Phyllis, to... Please introduce yourselves, uh, your, your work and the discipline and everything of this nature. Go ahead, uh, Olivia. Go, Phyllis, go. Go to it. You can do it first. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Olivia Cadaval, and I've been around a bit. And I, I guess through my many, many years at the university, which means uh, many, many festivals I curated, working with many, many communities, and uh, I guess my great uh, passion is recognizing that, first of all, recognizing that all the people that are doing the work and are not called folklorists. You know, this is where we work. And recognizing the community and being accountable to the community. And many, many times being part of the community. That and I have not found, you know, just working towards what collaboration may mean. Because most times collaboration is in our terms, that's not collaboration. Collaboration always opens you to vulnerability and learning and new culture, a new way of understanding and surviving. Anyway, 
That's me. Failed. Uh, I'm a failed uh, retiree. <laughs> <laughs> I stole that from Dan Sheehy, I do have to say. <laughs> well, you use it better. How about that? <laughs> well, I think it has become a club uh, of failed retirees. I am Phyllis May Machunda. I um, have been working in folklore studies since the mid 1970s. Um, I am a folklorist and ethnomusicologist. I was, uh, I am Professor Emerita from American Multicultural Studies in at Minnesota State University Moorhead. Um, but before that, I was a curator at uh, Smithsonian, um, working with local communities. Um, and doing work similar to what uh, Olivia just described, trying to collaborate with communities, um, not to fit communities into my ideas of who they should be, um, and looking broadly at our arts and and. Um, humanities and crafts expressions um, in the field. So I am uh, the lead curator for the notable Folklorists of Color exhibitions. Um, the first one I did with Olivia and uh, it was a wonderful collaboration. And the second one I did with Olivia and uh, Sojin Kim, who is also at the Smithsonian. So we're going to jump into that. Before we jump into that, the two of you said something, and you both made sure that we all understood the significance of this piece of information that you two shared. And it's collaboration and not fitting your idea on the community, but being a vessel to facilitate what the community wants through this collaboration. And then you ultimately collaborate with each other to do such brilliant work. Could you speak to us on what, why is it so important to collaborate? And then why is it um, um, significant not to put your vision of the community, but actually take what they want and facilitate their desires. <laughs> well, let me let me uh, begin with that. Um, in the 1980s, I came up with the term community scholar. And I came up with that term which was picked up in our field. Uh, I came up with that, that term because, you know, we're going out in the field and we're asking people for, to share their information. And it's not information that we usually know. They teach us their knowledge. They share our knowledge. 
And, you know, so it's not a matter of the expert coming to the community and uh, identifying that you have knowledge uh, uh, or no, that you have something that uh, would benefit the world. Uh, it, it, it is that in dialogue, we build a, we start building a relationship in doing this work and people share with you if they trust you, some of their knowledge. And if we're fortunate, it, it, it's a gift that they share. And, and we're not going to, to empty vessels. We're really, you know, engaging with, with ancestral knowledge, community knowledge, um, that they're willing to share with us, allow us to present it, but it's not, you know, we're learning from them. And I feel like we have to respect that. Um, and I think in some of the earlier days in the field, we didn't see people as knowledgeable. And I think that's a shift that I've been wanting to be part of. And they often have their own visions of how they want to present themselves. And so um, I, I have wanted to be a part uh, of acknowledging that and respecting that and building relationships that are equitable and accountable and responsible. And oftentimes, you know, it's a it's times of really a different ontologies. When people that people come from different ways of not where to get the knowledge, and if, if we are not sort of open to follow some of these little spaces that we can not have no idea what it is, we'll never know how they make decisions. Uh, people are very wise. People know how to. I, I don't want to use manipulate you, but lead you to what they think they know that you can take in. And communities are very, very savvy. And uh, so it's it's more than a learning process. I think it's really risking your security, your our sense of entitlement, and uh, opening up and say, hey, you know, now it's, this is not all, you know, uh, simple. Oftentimes you run into people that, I'm not sure why I got into that. You know, we're not, we're not responsible for their lives. They are responsible for their own lives. I am responsible for the way I comport myself with them. And understanding that, that you know, you, you're really a minimal piece, but then it is, it can be major. I mean, oftentimes I've done a lot of programs at the Folklife Festival, working with countries. And for these people from the countryside, oftentimes, 
to be recognized as, you know, this is your culture, the governments are not quite sure that that's how they want to see themselves on the national mall. So that's also that other challenge. You know, we're dealing with lots of different worlds. And the times you have, like with Ashwara that I worked with in Ecuador, that the person I was interviewing and bringing to the festival, he was also the president of the Shuar uh, community in Ecuador, which meant, I mean, like equal to president. So, you know, who am I telling him? And he looks at me and says, who are you, the Smithsonian, to tell me that you're going to show my culture and that I'm going to benefit from it? Uh, a larger reality is very different. Just to confuse it a little bit. Phyllis, because I think you cover you cover things so lot so beautifully. It has been great to collaborate with her. And as as I get older, things slip out of my mind very quickly. <laughs> that was beautiful. It's been wonderful to collaborate Thanks. with you too. Peace, brother Walto. Just have to always give the shout out. He's a good brother, and that's he's he's a um American, uh, Indian in Oklahoma, and Seminole historian and member actually um maria todd would you like the next question yeah okay you want to go ahead maria all right you go here <laughs> okay i know there's a i know there is a, a script we're supposed to be going asking our questions off of but i'm gonna break it right now because that's what i do i just can you just for our audience for for those um who are not familiar with the product project at all could you Talk about the inception of the Notable Folklorists of Color um, exhibition. Where did this idea come from? Uh, how did it get started? Um, I'm just, I, I think a lot of people are just really curious to know uh, who dreamed this up and, and how, did it, how did it become a reality? Phyllis, Phyllis, Phyllis. <laughs> Actually, um, while I was on the executive board, um, we were coming up on the anniversary of the CDC, the 25th anniversary of the CDC. And um, uh, Jessica said, oh, would you put a little something together for uh, to celebrate that anniversary? And I asked, uh, what are you thinking? And, and she said, oh, maybe you could highlight a few, and, and you know, uh, two or three um, <laughs> ancestors. Uh, uh, and uh, I said, well, how many, how many do you really want? And she said, well, maybe 10. And I said, do you want them to be all African-American? Because I could do that um, easily. And she said, no, let's make it more diverse. And I turned around to Olivia and said, would you join me in doing this project? And she said, yes. And so we've been partners ever since. Um, so what we did in 2019 was look at the um, legacies, uh, remembering our ancestral legacies. That's the name of that exhibition and we selected 25 uh, folklorists of color. We decided to feature those who were part of the American Folklore Society or had something to do with the American Folklore Society. And we made it multicultural. So we had um, Native Americans and um, 
Latinx folks and um, African Americans and Asian Americans. And it was really amazing to have that part of our history visible. And it was because, oh, sorry, I'm very bad oh, about interrupting. Go ahead. And it's interesting to see as we cut across different cultural communities, which we seldom do, then pile up together, um, we found these, we saw the emergence of these landscapes, these cultural landscapes, and uh, scholarly landscapes. And we can get into that later, but that was, as we drew, by, drew up away from the very detailed uh, essays we were, wor we were working on, we saw these great things, these configurations taking form. There were a number of scholars who had done tremendous work in the field. And, and so as I mentioned in my essay that you got at the um, uh, Tulsa meetings, it's called, I will hold it up, it's called uh, Recentering Recentering the peri Periphery, Coloring the Discourses, and Expanding the Frames. Um, it's a guide to both ex exhibitions and lists all the people that we feature and um, um, puts them in some context. What, what we, we um, emphasized in that first exhibition were people who would have identified as folklorists and worked in the traditional frames and um, venues that folklorists do. And I mentioned in, in that essay that in, in the 100th anniversary, which was uh, 30, probably 35 years ago this year, um, these people were barely mentioned. And I, I thought, you know, how could we forget <laughs> that? It, it's, it's history that we need to uh, bring forward, especially since the CDC had been working for many of those years. And many of those people were my mentors, like Gladys Marie Fry and, and uh, Bill Wiggins and Jerry Davis. Um, or there were colleagues, Beverly Robinson. And then there were people who were in much earlier, uh, um, John Mason Brewer, for example. Um, people that whose work we should know, but it wasn't being taught um, anymore. It wasn't um, in, in people's memories. The second part of the exhibit, Expanding the Frames, um, expanded our notion of what a folklorist is. Looking at the people who were doing work in their own communities and had published folklore material about it. 
And we found 135 of those people. And, you know, we didn't get all of them either. Um, but it's really... It was also without the performers. It was so important to get the performers that are in themselves, not all of them, but in themselves, they are folklorists and they're teaching others and building, building the discipline. Yes. It wasn't... It wasn't just practitioners, but people who were really passing it on, even if it was through, through some oral or embodied means. You know, so we got some dancers, some musicians. singers. We were telling the history. Yes. These people were um, really important in maintaining histories of traditions, histories uh, uh, of communities, histories of um, regions of the country, and often examining them and theorizing about them. You know, just shaking also the foundations of, you know, who is, who is the scholar? Who, yes. You know, who calls the shots? You know, at all levels. It's, uh, I mean, I do it. You all do it. So just, you know, bringing it forth with the real people that have committed to uh, to their traditions. And yes. Community, community very key. Yes. So um, once again, we have uh, Native Americans, Native Hawaiians, um, Latinx people from multiple communities, um, African Americans, and um, Asian Americans from multiple communities. Yeah, we, we had a little problem, a little not problem, but we toyed around with the idea of Latino, Latine, Latinex, Latino, whatever. But also, you know, there's in community like New Mexico, they would never have never felt they're Latino, they're Hispano, but not Hispanic. So, you know, in that little subtlety, just throwing it in there and, you know, people will pick it up, I hope, and contribute to that discourse. Well, then, of course, there's all the Native American, Latin American immigrants to this country. Are they Latino? Are they Mixteco? You know, it's, it's complicated. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's a texture of our discipline that we might be missing otherwise. Right. There are complex discourses about identity in, in our communities that we often don't tackle. There are um, challenging histories which um, the communities do tackle, but our discipline has not necessarily um, addressed um, histories of violence toward them and um, histories of of um, mixing and um, histories of negotiating racism and and sexism and 
um, classism. So, and even heterosexism. Right. So may I ask uh, you a question? Because this, this negotiation is also... You, you, first, you mentioned that they would be considered a folklore folklorist today. But at that, those days, that's not what they were called. So there's a couple of negotiations happening. Also, the negotiation of being omitted, that their work had to be handed in. Well, let me do more of a question. Did a lot of these people of color works have to be submitted through non-black lens or non-color lens? or non-women lens? Uh, yes. Yes, we encountered uh, um, that. And some were even in, submitted under colonial lenses and the lenses of segregation, you know? And, and so we talk about those who were trained as folklorists and those who were not. There are very few institutions in communities of color that train people to be folklorists. You know, segregation meant that you didn't get into the folklore programs for a long time. But that doesn't mean that people were not writing about their cultural traditions. We have Frederick Douglass, who wrote, you know, what we call an autobiography, but it's also an autoethnography. It's often a question, you know, who, who, who's, who's, uh, who's framing what, it, what scholarship is. Yes. That's very, that's very threatening. I really, very, very threatening. There's also, oh, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. There is a Maxideliac who's known as Buffalo Bird Woman, who wrote about the experience of being moved off the reservation, uh, uh, moved off their lands and onto the reservation. Another ethnography, uh, autoethnography. And, and, and she details you know, being fed foods that were not part of her cultural tradition and and trying to maintain certain things. She maintained a garden uh, um, that was of the traditional foods. That's how we know about Hadatsa foods um, and how, how they ate. And she was doing this in the 1800s. Um, there are people who have used the folklore, they center their scholarship in folklore uh, and, and, and use it for cultural critique and cultural criticism. And we featured some of those people, uh, like Toni Morrison, um, Yuri Kachiyama, uh, Grace Lee Boggs. James Baldwin, uh, you know, and, and, and huh? Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, 
um, Gloria Anzaldúa. Yep. And and what I was thinking about earlier today was that concrete divide between the scholar and the folk really melts away when you look at the work of these people. You know, um, the paradigm of the subject and the object, object, subject is still there. And that's what we're really, that's our greatest boundary to break that down. That there is yes. not of you and me separate. Yes. What do we get from you and what do you get from us? That's not often, you know, talk, talked about, although I've been challenged. You know, what do I get to go to the Smithsonian? Who needs the Smithsonian? How can we make it our Smithsonian? That's a challenge. Yes. So I have a quick question going off the our, our other questions over here, but I'm just thinking, you know, since we, you know, have these wonderful uh, folklorists of color, um, do you see um, this being taught in the classroom? Yes. Like we so want it to be. <laughs> um, um, Can it be a part? There, of there is. There are some people who who really buy the more traditional academic ways that the field has developed as the way that folklore should develop. But it doesn't include everyone. It's not, in, it's not inclusive and it needs to represent more people. It needs to represent the breadth of the work in the field. And, we consciously, and we, we consciously built it so that it would be accessible to students for them to do their own investigation because you know, they're very short little essays, very good little essays from very different perspectives from within, but there's also bibliographies. And you know, students can go in and you know put their own frameworks on them and you know learn by themselves which is really i think very valuable and that is something that phyllis has always been very conscious as a as a good teacher <laughs> and needing resources all the time to really make it accessible i think i think that that's important and it's also important that you see the variety of ways mm -hmm. that people of color have engaged with the field. Some have followed the traditional models in the field. Some have created their own models uh, in the field um, because they wanted to speak to something that, that um, the traditional work and scholarship in our field didn't address. Um, much of them, many of them, besides Zora Neale Hurston, uh, blend folklore with literature and uh, creative work. And um, 
it's a living tradition. I think you see that people respect the tradition by letting it live and nurturing it and teaching it and not expecting it to be static. But I might make a little, little tiny little disclaimer here. There are in the non-people, whatever people that are not colored, whatever, outside the people of color who are our colleagues and are really with us and we have learned from them and they have learned from us. And we just yes, be clear, you know, and you the, see the, the, the red, those the, interactions. The bad, the, and the ugly. Um, well, first, to those that are engaging with us that are commenting or passively watching, please don't hesitate. If you have a question for one of our future guests, Phyllis or Olivia, just ask in the chat and we will make sure that we relay your question to them. I want to piggyback off the education conversation and the fact that they were writing, a lot of these folklorists of color were writing ethno, um, auto-ethnographic pieces because a lot of the, the readings, if you will, based on the discipline or those who were out in, the, out in the field and wrote about their experiences um, omit these findings that you're sharing, right? Because I've read some that even said no one is doing this kind of work or that kind of work. And I mean, we all can rattle off names of people that are were actually doing it particularly at the time some of these things were being written. How much of that is a factor or was in the front of your mind as you were working on this? The fact that, you know, our ancestors or, and those who come before us, their work was actually omitted as if it didn't even mm -hmm. exist. That's probably where we started. <laughs> I beg you, go ahead, Olivia. Well, that's probably where we started this project, really recognizing that how, how can people have been omitted? All these, you know, all this scholarship been omitted. Partly. Yes. And, you know, when I went through graduate school, people were getting a, a little bit more than in, in, in the late, in, in the 70s, mid 70s. Um, early 80s, people were getting a little more of these people than, than they are now. Um, so they sort of dropped off the radar. You know, and, and I think that had to do with, in the 70s, it was the consciousness of the civil rights movement. Um, and you know, by the 80s, it was diminishing. <laughs> um, but I also th think that segregation structured our, our institutions of learning and um, consciously or unconsciously that they were maintained. And some of the some of the people got 
dropped after they died, you know, and and weren't there as a presence. But I think that we have an opportunity to live up to the ideals that our field has said that they want to do and 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 uh, bringing these stories forward and making the resources of their bibliographies each panel has has a bibliography with it of the works that that person featured person uh, has done um, bringing that forward um, gives us an opportunity to reclaim those stories and that knowledge and move toward more equitable frameworks in our field. Can I, I, I would just love to ask a question about, and, you know, hearing so much more about the project, again, makes me want to just thank both of you and everybody who is involved with this, because I just think like it's so important and it ha it has such, um, it's gonna have such an impact on the field moving forward. And I wondered if maybe you all had any thoughts about whether the, the ways that this project, that this project exists, says something about the different place that the field is in now as opposed to, let's say, you know, 50 years ago or, you know, in these, because it seems to me that um, a lot of these folks that you're, you're rediscovering in the project would have been, you know, present, um, had people, it, it, not just that they just sort of like forgot them, but like they, they intentionally left them out because they devalued their work. And it is this project's existence now um, show us that, you know, we are turning not just, you know, folklorists of color, um, people who are on the margins in the field, but the field itself is sort of reevaluating and thinking like, no, there's something valuable here that these folks were, had to offer, and we need to turn back to it in order to strengthen us in this very moment. Well, that's the argument of, for doing this work, um, uh, I, I think, um, but I, that's what I meant when I said that our institution and field were shaped by segregation. Um, that, you know, you look, the, the whole structure of, uh, of the folk uh, sets up that, that issue where you have the civilized, the educated, and then there are those people out there, those peasants, those those uh primitive obscure folk yes primitive obscure uh, uh folk who can't quite think enough uh, well enough to be civilized and um they were not supposed to they were supposed to be studied but not seen <laughs> you know they were okay for studying and in, in fact um, there's a, a, a native um, ancestor scholar, Will Long, 
who supplied information for six anthropological dissertations, six of them. And he, he confronted them about the benefits that they were getting and what, what he and his community was getting in return. And he had hoped to preserve knowledge because the tribes were, were being removed um, and put on the reservations and were put through cultural genocide. Um, so he was trying to preserve that information, but he had also hoped that he would benefit in some of the, and be recognized in some of the ways that these scholars were recognized because they were benefiting off of his knowledge. Um, and he was aware of it. Um, and the assumption is that the folk aren't fully aware of these relationships. And, and that, that's how segregation and racism sort of distorts the lens and contributes to that invisibility. To pick up on your, on your other thread about the shift today, I think it is very, very significant that yes. the American Folklore Society sponsored us from the top. My God, I've been on the diversity committee for 300 years and we were always, you know, yeah, we've taken care of that. They've got that committee now. And, you know, it's, it's significant. Working with Jessica has been another colleague who understands that, you know, something has to be opened. Yes. Um, I totally concur with that. This would not have been possible in some earlier generations. And a rethinking about what folklore can be in the future. And that democratizing um, egalitarian relationship, I think, has opened some doors to have voices heard that were not heard before. So first, I would like to take a moment to celebrate Jessica Turner, because <laughs> she, she, she is a revolutionary in, in that sense. Um, I would like to, we, we, I want to get back to this because this is very significant for many reasons, but I would like to ask, what was the process of putting this together? What did, how did you guys put this together? Where did you go? What were you doing? Please. Well, we have a lot of colleagues talking about collaboration. Wow. A lot of colleagues that come with different knowledge, different suggestions that like to write or they will learn to write. And there is a huge... Our young population, without them, we would not have been here. So Phyllis, you can take that one, but it's really, it's been collaboration from the beginning. All the essays are written by people from those communities. And that took a lot of arm twisting. Um, well, 
many people were ready to jump on board actually mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, but it was it, it's been a collaborative process from the very beginning beginning with AFS saying that they'd sponsor it and I kept on saying okay I wanted I'd like to do this and Jessica said yes and Olivia said yes. And Sojin, who unfortunately could not be with us to, this evening, um, said yes. Um, so part of the, the work was having a great leadership team. Uh, Olivia and Sojin and I worked our net networks and yeah. asking people to um, participate. And they were very interesting with some of my colleagues participating. They told me, hey, you know, Olivia, I discovered things that I did not think about before with this particular lens, which is very interesting. And, and then we put together a list of the scholars that we knew or had run across. And I used Google. Uh, um, uh, religiously to find uh, information on all of them. And then we um, thought about what we wanted to, to our, our little panels to look like and gave a template and um, um, sent it out and people get, came back and we edited things in a team manner. All three of us edited everything. Uh, um, and we went back to the authors and, and um, negotiated. Uh, yeah, negotiated or, or made recommendations and, um, so that's that part of the the process. Um, you know, there were several usually African American faculty and and uh, many faculty of color, for example, have lots of different things to do, and we caught a few at at the wrong time in their lives at that at that point, but. Um, we found a number of people who were really willing to, to contribute. So we had um, 50 collaborators uh, work on the, the projects and, and um, uh, that was wonderful. That was wonderful. And all those writers has created a network in itself, which is important. And we made it kept, you know, we insisted in including young people. Yes. And, and, and we wanted to highlight, we, we wanted to highlight scholars of color. So scholars of color wrote the pieces and scholars of color were featured in the pieces. And, you know, beyond Jessica making a space for it, there were different people in the society who collaborated with us too. And, and Kay Turner had the curriculum opportunities working group. Uh, 
Um, and uh, um, we talked a couple of years before this project um, materialized because I was tied up with some other things. And, and um, we had that and that was under her presidency. Um, you know, Norma and we had a group thinking about how we can have these dis have discussions about some of these topics in the society. And there were there was um, Amanda Dargan and uh, Selena Morales and um, uh, Norma Cantu and. Um, a number, a number of other, uh, Kay, Kay Borland, Katie Borland, um, um, a number of us uh, were discussing it. I think Sojin and, and Olivia and uh, Jessica and, you know, a number, a number of people uh, met regularly <laughs> to think about some of these issues as well, to move it forward. There was the FOAF conference in 2017 that Meredith McGriff and Jesse uh, Fivecoat and Christina Downs participated in that brought uh, these questions up um, it, uh, in the society. You know, so speaking to how the society moved there were lots of points where where these conversations were happening and the need came forward too and don't forget the eyes to put it together and make it look good it'd be so so not readable she was a genius at helping us create these little, these little gems of exhibit. Meredith, uh, yeah. absolutely, uh, absolutely. And Cecilia did the, Cecilia, what do you rem remember Cecilia's last name? You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> um, uh, it's in the booklet, I will find it. Um, uh, Cecilia from the Smithsonian. Um, where is her? Hallie, Cecilia Hallie um, designed the booklet using the the AFS, uh, some of the AFS colors in its new design, you know, and um, And then Jessica also funded graduate students to work with the project. And Maria was one of those graduate students. Yep, yep. But um, we have Holly Matthews and we have um, um, Alex Sanchez and Gloria uh, Colon. Can we, can so, we ask, uh, you have to tell us what, what, she, what it was like to work with us? Yes. So I just want to thank you all for um, 
allowing me to work with you guys. Like it was a, a definite blessing to be able to work on this project. There was just a lot of things that I did not know. I did not know. I, I didn't think about Langston Hughes or uh, uh, James Baldwin and people like that as being, you know, folklorists. I did, I didn't know. And so, and just, and what I'm trying to say, just going and just looking up like what everybody did, you know, like their projects, if they did music, if they danced, like everything. That was just amazing just to see like what people of color did. Like, I just, I, it was a lot of things that I did not know. And I'm just appreciative of this project and that, you know, uh, folklorists out there, the American Folklore Society, you know, is putting this out here to let, hey, there are people of color out here that's in the folklore field. Let's 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 talk about it. Let's get to know it. So did in any, I just did I appreciate any, everything. Did it in any way make you feel empowered? Yes, it did. Because if they can do it, I can too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Can I, you know, I, I, the, the, the oh, same ahead. story about, about um, needing to see representations of yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it makes such a difference. And I, I have to say that, that um, my success has a lot to do with the ancestors, now ancestors, who reached back and helped me. So um, we want that to continue. I was just going to say that, you know, the, um, I guess now we can access the exhibit online. And, um, but I think when it first started, like the, my first encounter with it was those big panels, like these six foot tall like panels <laughs> with the pictures and the yeah and like it and it was arranged you know in the hotel where the where the meeting was taking place and it was like you were walking around with all these people from history like the ancestors were there with us and it was yes. like this real like um spiritual kind of experience you know and I was like you know hello to this person you know Jerry hello how are you you know like it just <laughs> felt like you were spending time with them yeah beautiful yes uh, that was uh, Meredith and I talked about um, banners but and then and I had seen the I'd worked with another exhibit where they had these portable but standing uh, banners and I asked Meredith if we could use those and she said uh, you know she she made it happen. And uh, I'm glad to hear that that you had that spiritual experience too, because it was it was amazing in Baltimore in particular, mm -hmm. where where they were spread out in that that space and and it was like they were there, like the mm -hmm. the ancestors were there with us, and um, uh, that was. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Since we do have those panels, do you think that it would be possible to do like a traveling exhibit? Like maybe, uh, 
I don't know, maybe take it to like a historical society or special collections or maybe, you know, at a university that has um, uh, folk studies, maybe have it in their space, you know, just, you know, switch it up every every once in a while. Do you think it's something that notable folk folklorists of color uh, exhibition would do? Would you help us? That's a great idea. It is a, it, it is a great idea. We looked into it a little bit, and and we have to raise funds to to do that for the shipping. But I know IU used it some um, in between 2019 and 2020. What I'm grateful for, going back to something I said earlier, is that there was material about these pe people's lives on Google, on uh, on the internet. Um, and, you know, during COVID, this was my work, <laughs> you know, um, going to all these these sites and, and finding out about um, uh, the people and writing uh, the panels based on what I, I could find. Um, there were a, a few where I did some digging in some archives, but a lot of places or contacted people to do the, that digging for me. But, you know, with everything shut down during that time, it was such a blessing uh, to have Google to do that work and to bring it forward. So, I'm happy that you said that because this is a great segue. How many people did you all twist arms to be part of this? 50. Yeah. Over 50, over 50, over 50 people. Wonderful people, yeah. I, I yeah. remember, was it la last year when you had at, uh, so at Tulsa where you had the, uh, uh, reception and the celebration and everything. And I just remember looking in the door and seeing everybody who worked on it. I mean, it wasn't everybody, but it was like a lot of people up front at the front of the room. And it was right. just like so, such a beautiful collection of people. And it, it just, I don't know, like when you ha have been talking about the process and talking about everybody that worked, it's like, this is like, a this is a huge percentage of people in AFS. Like, it's like an <laughs> AFS collective project, you know, yeah. not just the yes. people, you know. Mm -hmm. And it extended beyond AFS. We had um, people from from in related fields who contributed to the process, and we introduced them to AFS uh, a bit. And and um, I'm hoping that they will come and join. Yes, here's the website. Join the wrong website, sorry. Join American Folklore <laughs> Society. Okay. And then you can also be part of whatever section you desire. We always promote the African American folklore section, but there are many that are doing great work. The Latino section welcomes you too. That's right. Well, you know what? Let me ask you. Olivia, because you mentioned this earlier, and um, so we're going back to revolutionary radical talk for a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, because I, I, I noticed you said it and I was like, oh, I want to get to that. You, you know, there's this uh, idea that I believe both the, the, well, just people of color have to deal with that we're just monolithic people. There's just mm-hmm. one yeah. type of black person, one type of Latino person. And you made it clear that in some spaces of Spanish speaking countries or folk groups, they don't, they may not consider themselves Latino. They may consider themselves Hispanic and so forth and so on. Um, Understanding the terrain of our discipline, how significant and vital is it to get that point across in this project? It's very, very vital. It's a question of history, history and landscape, where they come from. Uh, right, I mean, if you, we are really talking and recognizing you, and you are not Latine or Latinx. Uh, you know, we've already missed it right there. And now discussion opens up when it's there. But it's very, I mean, it's, we're not homogeneous. We're not homogeneous in a family, you know, let alone in a, in a you know, group of people that happen to be in part of some Latino descent. There are so many distinctions. Some of them are political distinctions. Some of them are experiential distinctions. You know, in the African-American community, they're the those who were Caribbean uh, American or um, mm-hmm. those who were African and, uh, you know, came here and have become African-American. They're, they're different cultural experiences. And all of our communities have that. I mean, when you talk about Asian American, you know, I mean, Asia's huge. And Chinese is not the same as Turkish. You know? You know, and, and, and so it's recognizing that that there's a diversity of experiences in all of our groups. You know, the Pueblos aren't the same as the the um, the the uh, uh, Iroquois. <laughs> you know, uh, in all of our groups, there's this huge span of diversity and conflict too. And yes. it has to be recognized because it's part of history. And if you start looking into our lives and the folk life, then you can begin a conversation, possibly, maybe. Right. Yeah, Southern Southern Blacks don't necessarily have the same experience as Midwestern Blacks or or Northeastern Blacks, you know? Or Southeast Washington Blacks and uh, Northeastern Washington Blacks. It's just a completely different milieu. The landscape, again, back to the landscape. Trying to find that place for the landscape, (laughs) learning. And yet there are some commonalities and and, um, sometimes racism forces commonalities. So are, are, are you hoping and working for this project to 
contribute to breaking down these these restrictions and 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 marginalizations of the folk groups in the discipline and in the field, right? Not just of what because you made I'm so happy you made that distinction earlier how they, there's this idea of academically trained and then mm-hmm. those are the people who do it. Yeah. Are, are you hoping that this project can help remove these margins and 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 um, I guess misnomers of the folk? We hope at least to open a conversation. Yes. And also to you know to engage younger scholars. Younger scholars surprise me all the time. I think you know they they have their own way of moving it forward. Todd, Maria, jump in. I don't have anything right now. <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. Uh, I, I might be out of questions too. I mean, I at this point, I just want to like heap adulation on y'all and and thanks and just you know all the praise in the world for what you've done. But just to reiterate again, you know that this seems to have been a huge project that brought a lot of people together. And that's going to benefit a lot of people. I mean, I just think you were talking, Phyllis, about how, you know, when you were getting your education that maybe more of these folks were recognized and taught than they even are now, which is kind of a shocking thing to hear. You know, (laughs) if you you sort of think about that, that's a little shocking. Um, But this hopefully this this project is just the beginning Yes. Of getting these folks back into the classroom, their 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 work, their writing, uh, their, you know, their performance, their creation, everything, you know, just to get this. I mean, I feel like uh, in in, you know, part of my training is as a literary scholar. And like when I was in graduate school, like a big part of what I was doing is like trying to find these books that were out of print, you know, that were by these great black authors, but their work had gone out of print and and not because it wasn't good stuff because nobody was teaching it, you know? And, uh, and, and so what this project gives us something, a place to start, a place to begin and people to bring this into the classroom. And then the next generation won't have that gap, you know? So I just, I just want to thank y'all for that. It's, I think it's really powerful. You know, and I, I hope that people can... see it see it across lines. I would be very disappointed if a Latino scholar only looked for the Americo Paredes and all the Latino stuff. But now rather than looking at James Baldwin, why is he here together with, with Americo Paredes? Well, you know, I really encourage that cutting across and mm-hmm. seeing the wider panorama. Because it's always That's, easier for us you know, to just go into one, you know, use one section to follow through. So that's really where I think will be very, that's where I will measure success. I think that that is something that I also want to to build on. I think that this gives us an opportunity to tell a more integrated history of our field. Um, when we were studying it, they were there were different silos uh, of folklore. So African American folklore didn't touch African folklore unless you deliberately made that that uh, uh, connection, um, it didn't 
touch Latin American folklore unless you made that connection. It didn't touch Native American folklore unless you made that connection. And I think that this project shows that there were um, opportunities where people crossed boundaries, communicated, were influenced by each other, and spoke to those who were doing the traditional um, the academic folklore work. And, and or, or there were interactions uh, uh, between these people and many of the people doing traditional uh, folklore work. And it gives us an opportunity to tell a new and more inclusive story. Yeah, I, I think of um, Leroy Jones, a.k.a. Amiri Baraka, when you say that, because he credits his trip to Cuba that really takes his writing to the next level, right? Um, first, I want to, Kay Turner says, I don't know if you all saw on the bottom, that we need a notable community scholars project. <laughs> I agree with that. Uh, Missouri Folk Arts say, uh, thank you to Phyllis and Olivia for gathering all the scholars in the exhibits and the scholars who authored those profiles. And Marilyn White says, one, yes, Phyllis, exclamation. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she says, Todd, you went out on your own to find the works. How many people did not do that? Thus, perpetuating their own ignorance um well you know what uh, yes <laughs> yes um as a or an a an applied folklorist I, <laughs> you know we i have to ask phyllis olivia is there anything we did not ask that you wanted us or thought we would ask <laughs> you're great you open all sorts of possibilities for all answering all sorts of levels and things I, I i really enjoyed talking and i usually don't talk anymore i i think you um touched many of the important points and i'm glad that uh, i've been able to be part of this project with the collaborators that that uh, we've had in this project. It's been a gift. Mm -hmm. So th and thank you for 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 having this conversation with us. Yep. It's thank been you. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. This has been yeah. a, a very pleasant way to spend an evening. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And the work, the work speaks for itself. The work is great. Um, folks, you can go to the notablefolklorestsofcolor.org to get updated info and all the information. And there is hyperlinks to the many different things that we discussed. You can go to americanfolklorsociety.org to become a member there you would also find the notable folklorists of color. You'll also find our annual meeting schedules and things of this nature and the many sections that you can be part of. Make sure one of those sections is the African-American folklore section. And while you're there, 
don't forget to apply for the John Wesley Work the Third Award. Okay, um, Todd, what what is our um, deadline date? Our deadline is May first. Is the deadline for submitting an application? All right. So now you can submit on your own. Mm-hmm. You can um, submit for someone else, right? And also, if, if folks have questions about the award, they can contact us. They can contact uh, either Lamont or myself, or they can contact uh, anyone at the AFS office can help either get them in contact with us or give them uh, information on how to apply. Um, and if you, you know, just questions or whatever, we'll, we'll work with you. I mean, May 1st is our deadline, but I mean, if that if that won't work for you, let us know. Maybe we can, you know, make an adjustment. So, you know. Yes. And the eligibility is on the site, but I will yes. go uh, read it quickly. <laughs> so all are welcome to apply, including those who are not members of the American Folklore Society or the section. The prize committee will be looking for expertise, promise, or sustained effort in the preservation, study, or transmission of African-American folk life. Applicants must demonstrate active participation in the study or documentation of African-American expression, whether through audio recordings, podcasts, written essays, publishing in scholarly journals, video production, manuscripts, performance, or any other area of cultural performance. I practiced that. I didn't just do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Phyllis, Olivia, thank you for the work that you've done and are doing and for this project. Maria, Todd, thank you as always. And good folks, you can find this on Jack Dapper Blues uh, Radio.tv YouTube page in the live archive section. Should be able to find this somewhere on the American Folklore Society because they have everything there. So just go through it, <laughs> search through it, right? And um, you can also, oh, and while you're at it, the African American Folklore Section has a Facebook group. Join that group too, <laughs> drop your information drop your thoughts, drop things that we may need to know because we don't know everything, right? Drop it, drop it, drop it all in there. And we're <laughs> dropping, we'll just continue to edify each other and um, keep folklore in. Lamont and, and uh, Todd, thank you so much for, for your work as, as well. Thank you, ma'am. Happy to do it. Yes, always. <laughs> Good folks. We'll see y'all on the flip side. Bye, right, y'all. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye.